Church family, I'm going to invite you right out of the blocks to do something that 200 million people around the world do not get to do in this moment, and that is read God's Word corporately, collectively, as a church family. So from the 11th chapter of the book of Romans, I would direct you to the screens at the front, and let's read together verses 33 to 36 of Romans chapter 11. You ready to do that? Let's do it together. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen and amen. Church family, here is what the Holy Spirit wants us to spend some time with today. He wishes that we would hang out here in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. And we would say back to the Lord, we are waiting, we are hungry, we are ready, we are ready to be challenged with the truth of your word this morning. Is that true? Is that true, church family? Amen and amen. Romans chapter 11. If you haven't already headed that direction in your Bible, would you do that with me, please? If you need a Bible this morning, Ron's poised and ready. Just get your hand up there and we'll share a copy of God's word with you in your bulletin. Grab this little note page out, if you would, because that will be of some help along the way today. And church family, everything that we have been sharing together over the past five weeks, if you've been with us, brings us today to soli deo gloria, God's glory alone. To him be glory forever. Amen, was the last line of verse 36. Today we bring our sola series to a close with Romans 11 to help us do that today. Now, if this is your first time with us, you might be asking, sola series? What? What in the world is that? Well, for the month of October and for this first week of November, we have been celebrating the true gospel as it is presented to us in the Bible, the true and only way to be saved and have a personal relationship with God, celebrating for six weeks now the true gospel. 500 years ago in October, the true gospel was rescued. During what has come to be known to history as the great, what? The great Reformation or the Protestant Reformation. The true gospel had been lost to the Western world and people were living and dying without ever knowing how to have an eternal relationship with the living God. The true gospel had been lost. It had been buried under religion and under false teaching at the hands of the Latin church, the the Roman Catholic church that dominated the scene in Europe in 1500. The true gospel of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us, appropriated into our lives by grace through faith in his death and his resurrection, plus nothing else, Jesus alone had been buried. That truth had been buried under a false gospel of Jesus plus Things I do saves me. But thanks to many brave reformers in the 16th century, the 
true gospel was rescued and given back to the people, ultimately it was given back to you and me, right? 500 years later. The reformers, beginning with Martin Luther and his challenges to the Latin church on October the 31st, 1517, and then going forward, came to these reformers came to define the gospel in a way that we now call the five solas, the five solas of the true gospel. Sola is the Latin word for alone. And the reformers declared that neither the Latin church nor its human leaders had any right or authority to add to the gospel once it had been given by God to sinners. The true gospel stands alone, they said. And the five solas that emerged from the Reformation with much struggle and with many of these reformers being martyred for their faith, that has come down to us today. The five solas, the five absolutely essential non-negotiable truths of biblical salvation doctrine. That is what came out of the Reformation 500 years ago. And you can see the five solas there on your note page. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, Grace Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus in Christ alone. And sola Deo Gloria for God's glory alone. The five solas, the five alones of true salvation. We took the five solas and with them, if you'll recall, we constructed what we really have come to call a super strong salvation house, the the true gospel house. If you were with us the first morning that we presented this, we asked the question, do you and do I live in this house, this true gospel house today? Do you? Yes. I'll ask one more time with a little more energy. Do you live in the true gospel house today? Yes, Yes, and so do I. The foundation of this house is sola scriptura. This true gospel house rests on the foundation of holy scripture alone. And everything that we believe, everything that we obey, everything that we embrace or do or hold most dear spiritually concerning our relationship with God is built on this rock solid foundation of sola scriptura. God said it. We believe it. That settles it. Amen. Yeah. And then upon this foundation rests the three massive pillars that define what the true gospel really is and and how it truly saves. Sola gratia, sola fide, and solus Christus. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Nothing added. And then when the foundation of Scripture alone is acknowledged and it's firmly in place and the three essential pillars of the true gospel are there and are, are, are immovably anchored into that foundation, then, then the roof over the gospel house pointing ever upward is soli deo gloria, for God's glory alone. The true gospel, though it saves us, is first and foremost for whose glory? It's for God's glory. God's glory alone. Church family, this house 
is the Reformation in a picture, essentially. But 500 years ago, the true gospel salvation house was in a shambles. It was an unrecognizable pile of rubble. The Latin church said the Bible plus the church share equal authority in delivering spiritual truth. And with that faulty foundation to build upon, it is no surprise that the true gospel of Jesus plus nothing else added was lost. But God, through the Reformation, recovered the true gospel for us. And so we have been, over these weeks, celebrating that. We've devoted a morning each to Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, last Sunday, Solus Christus, leaving us with one more Sola, right? The Sola to which ultimately all the other Solas direct their focus and find their fulfillment, Soli Deo Gloria, which means for God's glory alone. Church family, there are literally hundreds of verses or passages, psalms, in our Bibles that call us to, to that call us and admonish us, exhort us and command us to give glory and adoration and praise to God. On your note page, I just took a small sampling on the front near the bottom of your note page of passages that call us to give God glory. Isaiah forty two eight, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory. I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord what? Glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. 1 Peter 4.11 In order that in everything God may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion for how long, church? Forever and ever. Amen. And from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory, where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations for how long? Forever and ever. Amen. As I say, hundreds more could be added to these four, but perhaps no single passage can equal that of Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, for beauty, for clarity, or for its comprehensive, all-inclusive reach and scope. You can hardly do better than Romans 11. Holy Spirit inspired, these four verses are hard to match when you want to talk about the subject of soli deo gloria, God's glory alone. If you've not memorized these four verses and you left here today determined to hide these four verses in your heart, then I would think to myself, this was a great day at IBC. I won't ask you if you have it memorized, but I will say, let it live right here in your heart so that you always have it. Memorize this passage this week. Four verses. You can do it. I know you can. I believe in you. (laughs) Flip your note page over, church. Let's step into this amazing passage.
And church family, as we always try to do, and as you should try to do in your own private study, we want to be sure we consider the context or the setting in which Paul makes this incredible soli deo gloria declaration at the end of chapter 11. Why, why does he offer up this hard-to-top expression of praise to God? Why does it come? And why does it come in this moment? I know I sometimes wear you out with this exhortation to consider the context when you read your Bible. But we'll never be good students of Scripture nor good appliers of the Scripture to life if we do not first commit ourselves to, to context. So you see verses 33 to 36, as it turns out, they're going to be the only logical response that Paul can offer up after delivering 11 chapters of salvation truth in Romans 1 through 11. Holy Spirit inspired salvation truth. That's what Romans 1 through 11 is all about, how to be saved. The entire story of our redemption is given in these first 11 chapters of this book, if you know the book of Romans at all. Paul begins in the opening chapters with the declaration that we're all under God's just wrath because we all sin. We agree? We are all, we are all sinners. And if Romans stopped at chapter 3 and verse 20, we would be in an eternally bad way. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 21 of chapter 3 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, right? We've all done that. And are justified. Do you remember that word from two weeks ago? Justified, it means pronounced not guilty and fully righteous in the court of heaven by God. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that came or that is in Christ Jesus. Paul takes up the great themes of sola gratia and sola fide, grace alone and faith alone in Jesus alone that that results in the removal of sin's penalty from our lives. He goes so far as to tell us at the end of chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from God's love when we are in Christ Jesus by faith. Nothing can do that. You are secure in Jesus. And then Paul concludes this great salvation discourse in Romans in chapters 9, 10, and 11 by telling how the wisdom of God is able to take the hardness of the Jewish heart and use it to open the door of salvation to the Gentile, which is what most of us are in this room, and then in turn how God in his wisdom will use the salvation of Gentiles to ignite the fires of faith that will in the future bring the Jewish people into a relationship with God. Both Jew and Gentile saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Only an all-knowing, all-wise God could ever come up with such a plan for salvation as he does. And it is on the heels of that, 11 chapters of salvation truth, that's the context 
that Paul simply cannot contain himself any longer. And in what what we might call an involuntary explosion of praise, he shouts out in verse 33, Oh! Oh! You hear it? Can you hear it? Oh! The, The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh! The depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Say it with me, church. Can you say it with me? Kind of say it that way. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Again, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. One more time. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Can you feel it? Paul is in absolute stunned wonder and awe over God's knowledge and wisdom that results in salvation. If God can devise a way for sinners to be saved from an eternity in hell, if He in His wisdom can secure a place for us in heaven, preserving His holy justice despite our sinful guilt, is there any other part of our life that He cannot perfectly oversee and care for? No other part. Paul is lost in the wonder of a saving God in these four verses. In awe of a God so incomprehensibly great that all glory should go to him alone. He's kind of like a climber on Mount Everest. For two months, a climber struggles and acclimates and he hauls gear and he he sets ropes and he braves all the hazards step after step for thousands of vertical feet until for one incredible moment that lasts only a few minutes, he can go no higher. He is at the summit. He stands on the summit and all he can do is he can, he can just take in the view. His camera can't really capture it. His mind can't retain it. And his, motion, his emotions can't contain it. Well, that's Paul. That's Paul here on the backside of 11 chapters of salvation truth. There's nowhere else he can go. All he can do is stand awestruck in the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of this God who saves. Are you with me? Are you with Paul? Oh! The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Think with me about the knowledge of God for just a moment. God possesses a knowledge that is utterly and completely unique because it is a limitless knowledge. Psalm 147 verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has what? No limits. No limits. It's infinite. Perfect, limitless knowledge. He knows all things that can be known. He knows them exhaustively. He knows them completely and fully. No limit. We, on the other hand, you and me, even the most brilliant person in the world knows only a small speck of what can be known. And even this is not perfectly known, is it? 
to help us get a hold of this truth about God and his knowledge a little bit better, listen to the words of A.W. Tozier, a pastor writing in the middle of the last century, about 1940. He speaks about God's knowledge and he says this, God cannot learn. In fact, if your children ever ask you, is there anything God cannot do? Well, that's one of the things he cannot do. He cannot learn. Why? Because he already knows it all, right? Could God at any time or in any manner receive in his mind knowledge that he did not possess and had not possessed from eternity past, he would be imperfect and less than himself. To think of a God who must sit at the feet of a teacher, even though that teacher be an archangel, is to think of someone other than the most high God. Because God knows all things perfectly. He knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised. He never wonders about anything. That's from Knowledge of the Holy. Tozier's little paperback book. How very different that is from us, right? How very different. There's absolutely nothing that God does not know right now from the spinning of galaxies, thousands of light years in diameter down to the vibrations of some atomic particles. He knows about it. Every word spoken by every person who has ever lived, he knows that. And every thought in every mind that was never spoken by every person who has ever lived, he knows that too. Every movement of every one of the countless trillions of insects and birds and fish and mammals that have ever lived anywhere in the world. He knows about that. Every chemical reaction going on right now inside of every leaf on every tree on every continent. He knows about that right now. Fully understood by God simultaneously and he never ever has not known these things. I have trouble remembering to pick up the mail. When Lisa says, pick up the mail before you come home, I can't remember that. Christian, God knows our lives, right? Right down to the number of hairs on our head and the number of cells in our bodies. Oh, does he know us? So the knowledge of God overwhelms Paul with a holy awe as well it should. But then added to that is the wisdom of God. Oh, the depth of the riches of God's wisdom. Now, God's wisdom and God's knowledge are not the same thing, are they? They're not the same. They're not synonyms. They are different. God's wisdom includes all of God's knowledge. But it's even more than that. For example, even in our own puny, finite world, there are lots of people who have tons of knowledge, right? People who are really smart. They know a lot of things, but they are not necessarily wise, are they? In fact, some of the most knowledgeable people on the planet do really foolish things because knowledge and wisdom aren't the same. Knowing how to use knowledge, well, that's what wisdom's all about. Obviously, God cannot be all-wise unless he is all-knowing. But because he is all-wise, he takes everything that he knows, which is everything that there is to be known, And he directs it to the outcome that will ultimately glorify him the most. That's perfect wisdom. Another way to say it might be that God's wisdom gives him the ability to see 
perfect outcomes and achieve those outcomes in the way perfectly that he wants it to come out. That's wisdom. He sees the beginning from the end because he has all knowledge. And then because he is all wise, he takes the course of action that accomplishes the end that he already sees. Try to get your head around that. (laughs) There's no guessing with God. There's no wondering. There's no hoping for him. He sees everything in focus, everything in relationship to everything else. And then he wisely plots a course with flawless precision to the perfect good end that he wants realized and that will bring him the most glory. That's God. Fellow Christian, it is God's wisdom that makes, for example, Romans 8:28 work in your life and in mine. How does this verse go? You know this verse, don't you? Yeah? And we know that in all things, not some, but all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Our all-powerful God, who is also our all-knowing God, is also our all-wise God. And his wisdom is put to work for us, for our good, which whether we can see it in this life or not, perfectly fits into his highest purposes for us and brings him the most glory as well. He never ever does less than what is best for us. And at the same time, what will bring him the most glory? Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. And then perhaps frustrated in this moment of awe as a finite sinful human being hunting for language to speak further about this infinitely wise, all-knowing God, Paul can only declare in praise that God's judgments are unsearchable and his ways are inscrutable. Your Bible may say beyond tracing out, right? That's actually an excellent rendering of that phrase, beyond tracing out. Inscrutable are his ways. Beyond tracing out. That translates a, a word here that literally refers to footprints that are untrackable. That's the word that Paul uses in this moment. It's like when a hunter has to give up because the the animal he's tracking has seemingly vanished without a trace, doesn't even leave footprints. Untrackable. God's ways are untrackable. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 77, 19, the writer actually says that tracing God's ways in this world is as futile as tracking his footprints on a storm-tossed ocean. Impossible. 77.19 Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were what? Unseen. You are untrackable, God. Your ways are just beyond me. And then God was certainly up front when he said this, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, there on, 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 on the front of your study page. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, don't try to figure me out. Don't try. You can't. I know infinitely more 
than you are capable of knowing, and I'm wiser than you can fathom. Don't try to figure me out. Just trust me. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Now, that doesn't mean, church family, that we can't know or understand anything about God or about his ways. Through his written word and from the world that he's made, we know a lot about God, what he's like and how he works. But he will always be untrackable, unfathomable. He will always be asking us to trust him. This is how it has to be if he's going to be our God, right? If he's going to be a God worthy of your eternal devotion, he needs to be an untraceable, untrackable God. Soli Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone. Amen? Amen. Well, as Paul continues to proclaim his awestruck wonder at the wisdom of God in saving sinners, he launches into a series of three rhetorical questions. Verse 34 and 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? In other words, could anyone ever suggest anything to God that he's not thought about already? Could anybody ever do that? What's the answer? No, he knows everything in the world, everything in history, everything in the present, and everything in the future. He knows it all. Before there was even a world, he knew all things. And he's known all these things forever in the past. No one, certainly not a finite, sinful person like you or me, is ever going to say, you know, God, have you ever thought about this? We're never going to say, have you thought about doing it this way? Just a thought, just an idea, just a suggestion. And we do that, though, don't we? We do that. We pray that suggestion. Have you ever thought about this? This is so good for us to know in our crazy upside-down world, isn't it? God doesn't need a counselor. He doesn't need an advisor. Verse 35 Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Because no one was before God and everything comes from God. No one can give to God anything that was not first given to them by God. Right? Anything that can be given to him came from him. Right? God does not, cannot, never will owe anything to anyone ever. And in this context where salvation and the true gospel are what's in view, he owes no sinner salvation, does he? He doesn't owe you salvation. He doesn't owe me salvation. He owes us nothing. That he saves anyone is simply because he wants to. It's pure grace. Sola gratia, right? Grace alone. So let's answer Paul's questions for him as a church family. What do you say? Let's do that. I'll ask, and then you answer out loud like you mean it, okay? With increasing energy. Do you notice the exclamation marks? One, then two, then three, okay? So so you answer just the way that you see this, all right? I'm going to ask the question, for who has known the mind of the Lord? For who has been his counselor? No one. 
Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Paul is truly stunned by the depth of God's knowledge and wisdom and he cannot fathom it. He can't track it. He can only bow in awe that this God would want to use his wisdom for the good of sinners. And all of this brings us to verse 36 and the fourth verse in Paul's outpouring of praise. It's kind of like his wow That's verse 36. There's only one conclusion that can be drawn from all that he has shared. All glory has to be to God alone. That's it, isn't it? That's it. That has to be it. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. And the church says, Amen. Amen. Now there are more than a few who would be quick to say that this is the single most complete, all-encompassing, God-exalting sentence in the Bible. Therefore, it makes it worthy of being memorized, right? It would be hard to argue that statement too. God is the centerpiece, the focus, the goal, the end of all things. And all glory should and it must go to him alone. Now on your note page, let's think about the truth of this verse in two arenas. God and his creation, first of all. God and then God and the true gospel. First, God and his creation. And we start here simply because of the words all things. All things includes everything that exists, both in the physical universe as all the things in the non-physical universe, but nevertheless they exist, like truth or virtue or feelings or thoughts or salvation. There was a time, church family, when God was alone. The three in one So never alone in that way. But he was alone. In a time before there was time, when even space did not exist, God, the great I am, the self-existing one, was as perfect, as fulfilled, as blessed and glorious in his eternal being as he is right now. He has never not been that way. Before there was a son, father, son, and Holy Spirit dwelt in unapproachable light. Before there was an earth, the throne of God stood firm. If this great and only God dwelling in perfect solitude chooses to create anything at all, whether our universe or one in another dimension, the conception of that universe, the planning of it, the power to carry out the plan, and the purpose for bringing that universe into being all reside in this one person who is God. Which is why Paul, fairly bursting with praise, says in verse 36 that everything in the universe comes from God's mind, from God's mind, exists through his creative power and is to him for his, what again? His glory, his pleasure, his praise, his exaltation. 
because it's all about Him, right? (laughs) It's all about Him. When God set out to create the heavens and earth, He didn't call for help, did He? He didn't need any help. In fact, there was no one to call out help to. It was just Him. He didn't even use existing materials, did He? Nothing. There was nothing. There was nothing. God created everything out of nothing. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. What did He do next? Created. It's one of the most profound statements in Scripture. It simply takes as a given without explanation that if anything exists, then God, as the uncaused cause, made it. And ultimately, He made it for who? For who, church? For himself, for his glory, right? He didn't make it for us. We didn't exist. He made it for himself. His motive for creation must be found entirely in himself. Creation is to him for his, what? His glory. The psalmist expressed this beautifully when he looked upon a starry night sky and he declared it in nearly impossible language Impossible to express this wonder. The heavens declare what, church? The glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, creation is screaming God, right? There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. No one can say, I didn't know God exists. If you've got eyes in your head and a brain, you know God exists. You may not like that, but it's true. God's creation shouts. It exists from Him and through Him and to Him. To God be the glory. Now, if God created the universe to display His glory... We must conclude that he created us for what? For his glory as well. We were made as part of his creation for his glory. Why did God create you? Why did he create me? He created us for what? Say it, church. His glory. That's why you exist. That's why I exist. Here's one example out of many, Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. God said, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Talking about the redeemed community. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. My glory. Whom I formed and made. It's not about us, is it? It's never, ever been about us. We, each of us, was conceived in the mind of God. We are from Him. We were created through the power of God and made to be to the glory of God. And if we don't get this, if we don't get this, we're no different than our self focused culture that is preoccupied with its own personal gain and happiness. We're just like it. If we don't get this, are you following me church? Yeah. Only when we realize that we were made for something bigger than us, 
does life really find satisfaction and take on meaning and purpose? It's got to be bigger. John Piper, well-known pastor, author, theologian, calls this, this conviction that we were made for God's glory. He calls this the continental divide of human belief. And here's what he says. If you really believe this, that you were made for God's glory, all the rivers of your life and your thinking run toward him. If you do not believe this, all rivers in your life run toward you. It's a great, great word picture. Who do you exist for? You exist for him, for his glory. Amen and amen. And so the question would be, does my life, does my, do my relationships, do my choices affirm that conviction? Would someone look at my life and conclude by the way that we live and think and move and choose, would they conclude, ha, you live for someone bigger than you. You live for him. Oh, that that would be true, yes? Yeah. Now, as I mentioned, verse 36 is not just concerned with creation. In fact, that would not be the first focus. It's also pointing toward God, God and the true gospel. The words all things clearly includes all the physical creation. We get that. But the second part of this is obvious because the true gospel of salvation that Paul has been writing about for 11 chapters in Romans has to be included in the all things. Since that's the context, salvation truth. Salvation is from God and through God and to God for his glory. I mean, think again of the five solas that God gave back to us through the Reformation. They're at the very heart of verse 36. Think about sola scriptura. It is from who? The Bible you hold in your lap right now. Who's that from? That is from God. He's its source. He's the Word, isn't He? The Word of God. It has come to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And it will endure forever to God's glory. What did Jesus say? Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will what? They'll never pass away. Sola Scriptura, God's glory. Think about sola gratia, salvation by grace alone. We are as sinners, we as sinners have no claim upon God. Remember, he owes us nothing. Our sin deserves an eternity in hell, but from God flows undeserved kindness. That's grace. Through his love that he alone determines to lavish on us who are sinners and do not deserve it. And he gives us eternal life. And all to what? To bring him greater glory. Think about sola fide. Saved through faith alone. From God we receive a gift. The ability to believe in Jesus. We don't even come up with faith. God gives us that too. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is what church? It's the gift of God. So faith is from God, through God, and to God. 
for his glory alone. And then speaking of the work of Jesus, think about Solus Christus. He is from God, is he not? Jesus is from God through a miraculous conception accomplished by the Holy Spirit. He enters our world, lives a sinless life, dies an undeserved death on a cross in our place. He pays the sin debt that we owe that we could never give back to God. He applies the righteousness of Jesus to our life. We are justified, pronounced not guilty, fully forgiven by God in the court of heaven. It is from God and through God and to God. Solus Christus. Father, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. That's what Jesus says. I brought you glory. In other words, each of these solas exists to fulfill the fifth sola, doesn't don't they? I mean, that's really how it goes. Sola de, Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. The final point that falls from the apostle's pen after 11 chapters of the true gospel being presented is to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. When we ask, why should that be? Why should it be to God's glory forever and ever? Because all things are from him and through him and to him alone. Sola Scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, soli Deo Gloria. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together, church. Oh, Father, may that be what we have done here today, brought you great glory. As a church family, for the past six weeks, we have been focusing on these solas. Oh, may each week have brought you glory. For it is from you and through you and to you that all things move. Thank you. Thank you for the solas. And and Lord, can we just ask you as we would wrap this series up this morning, can we just ask you that you'd make us a sola church? Make us a sola church on scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, for your glory alone. Would you make us a sola church? And all God's people said, amen. And amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.